Well, good evening. It's good to see you. Welcome to Revelation. We're to chapter 2 tonight. Sorry we had to miss last Wednesday night with the bad weather and the ice, but we have pretty weather out there now and looking forward to continuing on. Good to see a good crowd here tonight. We, the last two weeks we had a tremendous crowd online as well, so we welcome you wherever you're joining us online, also virtually as we study God's Word together. Well, Revelation is going to get really interesting. We're going, picking it up, we're to chapter 2 tonight, so turn there if you have your Bible, your device, I'll be in the ESV. And uh, starting 2 and 3 chapters are to the letters to the seven churches. We'll talk more about that tonight. Once we get to chapter 4, we start getting into more of the visions, and I think that you're going to find those to be really interesting. A couple of places, all that's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now, I think that you're going to find interesting as we move along and get there. So good time to be studying Revelation, seeing what God is doing in the world around us, and uh, I think that you'll find it really interesting as we continue on in these weeks. So we're glad that you're here. Let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word together. God, thank you for revelation, the promise you've given to us through this book that whoever reads it uh, individually, whoever studies it as a group will be blessed. So Father, thank you for blessing us tonight and I just pray that you'll give us wisdom and insight through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for those who are here in person. God, the, the good crowd that's here. Thank you for those that are online studying with us, and I just pray your blessings through the Holy Spirit tonight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so far the first couple of sessions we've looked at the introduction, a brief introduction to, uh, to the, the uh, letter, and then we looked at chapter 1. So we are now to chapter 2. But before we continue on, it's time for your pop quiz. So you're getting your notes out. This is supposed to be a closed note pop, pop quiz. But let's review some things uh, up to this point. What's the Greek word for revelation? Apocalypse. Absolutely. It's the word apocalypse, which means to unveil. It's something that was previously hidden that's now been unveiled. So that's what the book means. It, it's been hidden, and God has now revealed some things to us. What is the date of revelation? When was it written? 90 A.D. I heard it. That's good. 90 A.D. Jesus uh, crucified around 30 A.D. So we're looking 60 years after Jesus was crucified that Revelation was written. Where was John when he wrote the book? Patmos. There we go. Island of Patmos out in the, in the Aegean Sea there. What was the Roman emperor's name who was persecuting everybody when John wrote? Domitian, absolutely right. He was the crazed emperor, uh, persecuting Christians, thinking he was God, demanding to be worshipped. And so that background comes into play all the way through the letter. There were three problems present in all the churches of Revelation. What were those three? Persecution was one in which whenever you see what image does it relate to persecution? The beast. Anytime you talk about the beast or see the beast in Revelation, it's referring to the Roman Empire and the persecution that's taking place. What was the second problem? Heresy. False teaching, heresy, absolutely. So what's the image for false teaching in Revelation? The false prophet, that's right. Anytime you're reading, it talks about the false prophet, it's referring to the false teaching that was going throughout the churches. What was the third one? Cultural influence. Boy, that relates to our day, doesn't it? Cultural influence. So what was the image relating to cultural influence in, in, the, in the letter? The prostitute. 
The, the great prostitute, it talks about several times, that refers to the cultural influence. So they were being persecuted, culture was influencing the church, and there were false teachers among these seven churches. Now, how many visions are in the book? 60, more than 60 visions uh, are in the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation refers to the Old Testament a lot. How many references to the Old Testament? 350. 70% of the book refers back to the Old Testament. Uh, so, you're doing good so far. A couple more questions. What was the lampstand? The church. Absolutely. Whenever it refers to the lampstand, it's referring to the church. So, uh, and, and then the last question is, what is, uh, whenever you read into Scripture, what's that called? Eisegesis. And then whenever you draw out of Scripture, it's exegesis. All right, that's important because reading the Bible for what it is and taking the truth that's there is exegeting but when you read into it, read what you think your symbolism is or anything else, and a lot of people read into Revelation things that aren't there, that's eisegesis. And that is incorrect interpretation of Revelation. We'll talk more about that in a moment. So you did pretty well. I think everybody's still got an A so far, most of you. So, uh, but anyway, we'll continue. Look at letter A on your outline, and maybe you're wondering where to find the study notes. If you go to our website, FBC Garland and go to the media page, you'll see the notes there that are listed. Or as you walk in the back doors, you can scan it on your phone and they come right up. So if you want to use uh, your phone and scan them as you come in each Wednesday, you can do that. First of all, letter A, let's give some background before we get to chapter 2. Chapter 2 and 3 are seven letters to seven churches that John wrote. So before we get there, I need to explain a little bit about the letters. So tonight we'll cover two letters, maybe three letters, and then we'll finish up the rest of the churches next week. Then the following week, we'll start looking chapter 4 and more visions uh, that, that you'll, I think that you'll find that to be really interesting as it relates to our day. So chapters 2 and 3 tonight and in our next session. So first of all, just a note about the seven churches of Asia Minor. This, these seven churches, that's to whom Revelation was written. Okay, it wasn't written to us. That applies to us, but it wasn't written to us. It was written to them. So before we can know what it means for us, we have to find out what did it mean to them. And so we're looking at those seven churches for these next two sessions. Not written to individuals, written to churches. I think that's significant. Uh, there's a lot of people that I know that they are obsessed with Revelation. They try, they read it all the time, research it all the time, listen to people teach on it all the time. They're obsessed with understanding Revelation, but they're not in church. It was written to churches. So the very nature of the letter, if you want to understand it, get in church. It was written to church. It wasn't written to an individual out there trying to figure out what the revelation meant, it was sent to churches. So I think it's important that we are involved in a local church, revelation written and understood in the context of local churches. So these are the seven. Uh, they make up a regional, what was known as Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. 
uh, and, and their churches were Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, seven of them. Now, questions have been asked, why these seven? Weren't there more churches in Asia Minor and in Israel than seven? Yes, there were. So, why these seven and not others? Well, there have been several theories as to why these seven. One theory is that it is a, if you, if you look at a map and you just dot all seven churches, it makes a circle. Ephesus starts right close to where John was. It was the nearest city to, to Patmos. So geographically, it starts there and it goes all the way around and Laodicea ends right back close to Ephesus. So some people say this circular pattern is where the gospel had expanded to by this time. Very possible. And so to them, it was really the entire known region. So the letters were to churches of the entire region to where the gospel had spread. And that's, that's very possible. Uh, not only that, each one of these towns, we'll talk more about it when we get there, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamon and all that, they were highly defined cultural cities. And we'll talk about that more. So some people say, well, they were the most important. They were the, the, the great cities of the day. A lot of population, a lot, very sophisticated. Uh, so these were the population centers. So that's why these seven. Wasn't just some little podunk town in the middle of nowhere. These were the seven largest cities of the region. So that's very possible as well. Another theory is that's where the post offices were. And that may have been true. That's the postal districts were in the large cities. So maybe that's the reason God had these seven. That's where the postal districts were. But there are a couple of other theories I want to mention. Why these seven? Some people say these churches... These seven are representative of every church that has ever existed. So, First Baptist Garland is one of these seven, one of these types. So, a lot of people say that, that every church that's ever existed, these are a prototype, and we are like one of these. A lot of people believe that. That's possible. But there's also another theory I'll talk a little bit more about here in just a moment. And that is, there's another theory that these seven churches were representative of the seven time periods of church history. Starting from the time Jesus ascended back to heaven to the time he comes again at the rapture, there are seven time periods, people say, and each one of these churches, in order are representative of that time period. I'll talk a little bit more about that one in a moment because that's probably the most common theory, but I'm not certain. We'll talk more about it in, in just a moment. Something else interesting about these seven letters, these seven churches, their bookends. One and seven are bad churches. They're in grave danger of ceasing to exist. Two and six are great churches, are good ones. In the middle, three, four, and five, yeah, some good, some bad. So you've got really bad churches, really good churches, and in the middle, 
hit and miss, some are good, some are bad. And so we'll talk more about why that is a little bit later as well. Go letter B on your outline, the pattern of each letter. Now, all seven churches that you're going to see tonight and in our next session next Wednesday night, there's a pattern to each one of them. John writes to Ephesus, and he begins with a description of Jesus in that church. Is Jesus in the church? Yeah. And he said, I'm watching what you do. Okay. All right. So every church, a description of Christ. Then it goes straight from there, all seven churches, there is a commendation. He tells them what they're doing good. He commends them. Here's what you're doing good. Then he tells them, here's what you're doing bad. He rebukes them. Then after the rebuke, there is an exhortation. Here's what you need to do better. Here's, in, in the days to come, here's what you need to focus on. He exhorts them. And then he gives a promise. Every, that pattern is in every one. He commends them. He uh, rebukes them. He exhorts them. And then there's a promise. And in every church, it begins with the description of Jesus in that church. Now, one of the things that it always says at the beginning of every letter, and I think this is significant. At the beginning of every letter, Jesus always tells the church, I know your works. I know what you're doing. He is very well aware of what happens in every single church. So think of that the next time you are tempted to get your feelings hurt. Think of that the next time you are tempted to state your opinion because you don't like something. This is his church, not mine, not yours. It's his. He's listening. He's watching. He knows your works. So the next time you're tempted to make a bigger deal out of Sunday school or church or something than it should be, or your pew, or whatever, be careful. He knows your works. So sometimes I think we think, well, God's in heaven. He's removed. I can act like I want to. This is my church. No, it's not your church. It doesn't matter how long you've been here. It's not your church. It's not my church. I've never shed one drop of blood for this church. I came close a time or two. But I've never shed one drop of blood for this church. But he has. And in every church he says, I know your works. And then he tells them specifically what's going on. So be careful. And every letter ends the same way. It ends by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, listen to what I just said. So these seven churches and what is going to be talked about, vitally important. And so listen carefully for tonight and next, in our next session as we go through. Okay, let us see on your outline. Historical or symbolic? Now, back to these seven churches and the seven time periods that they may represent. Some people believe that these seven churches of Asia Minor are historical churches. 
they were actually churches at one time and they existed in history. But there are other people that believe these churches never existed. They're just symbols. That they're symbolic. They're not real churches. And then there are some people believe that they're both historical churches. They really existed, but they're symbols of something greater. A lot of people believe that. If you go to the internet, you'll see most everybody. I would say most websites you go to will believe about what I'm about to tell you. They believe that every church represents a time period. The first church, Ephesus, was the age of the apostles, 40 A.D. to about 150 A.D. The second church, Smyrna, corresponds to the period under the Caesars in persecution, uh, roughly 100 to 313 A.D. Third church, Pergamum, that represents the time frame of the church and the state together, the compromising church. Remember whenever Constantine wedded together the church and the state? So that's about 313 to about 590 A.D. Then you go to the next church, Thyatira. That's the period where the Roman Catholic Church and corruption came in and they control Christian history. That is about 590 up to the Reformation at 517. Then you go to the next church, Sardis, which is the rep, rep, that corresponds to the Reformation, which would be 1517 to about 1700. Then you go to the next church, Philadelphia, and that represents the Great Awakenings in America. That's the alive church. That's the church that's things happening. That's the Great Awakening from 1700 to 1900. And then the last church, Laodicea, that's the worldly church. The church where the world is influenced way too much. And you have the social gospel and you have everything else. That's the year 1900 to the present. And so they see in all of these churches representative of every time period throughout church history. Most of the websites and books you see will say this is what the book is. That's what Revelation's t- telling us. Others believe that there are hidden false teachings in these churches. The Mormons are represented in one of the churches. The Worldwide Church of God, the Church of Philadelphia, and the Seventh-day Adventists. Those are, those are Sardis. Folks, we're reading, we're eisegeting way too much here, aren't we? Reading into what's here. If you're not careful, you begin to read into the passages of Revelation rather than draw out what's there. You eisegete rather than exegete. And whenever you begin to do that, whenever you begin to read into the passages what you think, you start to begin to make the Bible say something it never says. And that's dangerous territory. You begin at that point to make the passages fit a pattern that you want. And the Bible becomes what you say it means. Be careful about that. I'm not the one that should be determining revelation. It should determine itself as we read it. So let the passage tell you what it means. Now concerning these time periods that I just mentioned a moment ago that you read most of the time, people believe that. I will admit, some of these churches fit those time periods. I admit there are some characteristics of those time periods in there. 
but others do not fit the time period. Let me give you an example. Church at Sardis corresponds to the Reformation, according to this theory. In the church of Sardis, there is no commendation from God at all. He never says one thing good that they did. So are you telling me not one good thing came out of the Reformation? Really? The the Reformation is where we got salvation by faith alone. Sola fide. The Reformation is where we got scriptures, our final authority. Sola scriptura. You mean not one good thing came out of that time period? That's where most of our faith came from. So, Sardis kind of breaks down a little bit. So, all the time periods don't really fit perfectly, so be careful about assigning time periods and reading into these passages more than you should read into them. Here's another thing to be careful of. Be careful of making America too great in this book. Whenever we talk about the Great Awakenings, yes, they were wonderful in our time period, in, in our culture, but worldwide in Revelation goes much broader than America. It really was a blip on the radar to the Roman Empire, and the old Roman Empire. So, you have to be careful of superimposing our culture onto Revelation and trying to make it fit who we are. We need to see what Revelation is telling us and then apply it to our culture, which we're going to see a lot as we go along. So, having said all that, let me give you one hermeneutical principle that's really important. What I mean by hermeneutical principle is one principle of how to interpret Revelation. This is important. We will have to remember it as we go all the way through the rest of the book. Take any passage of Scripture in Revelation literally unless there's an obvious reason that it needs to be symbolic. Okay? So just assume every passage is literal. Don't try to read into every passage. Don't try to put symbols into every passage. You're going to make it say things it doesn't say. So, assume every passage is literal unless it's obvious it's symbolic. Let me give you some examples. We're going to read in a couple of weeks about a monster rising out of the ocean that has ten horns and seven heads. That's probably not literal. That's probably symbolic. We're going to read about a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes. That's probably not literal. That's probably meant to be symbolic. We're going to read about locusts as big as horses. Probably not literal, maybe, but most likely symbolic. So, let me just say, we have seven churches here. Seven churches that existed in history we know for certain you can go visit every one of the ruins today of these churches all seven we know there's seven churches that existed so take these seven passages literally without trying to superimpose a hidden meaning on every single church and violate passages and making the bible say something it maybe never was meant to say
So that's just an introduction to the seven letters of Asia Minor. Now, let's look at the first one at Ephesus. Letter D on your outline. Uh, the letter to Ephesus, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all, about Ephesus. John's riding from Patmos. If you go straight across the water and you, your ship docks, which ours has done before. Many of you were with us on that trip. We left the island of Patmos. We, we took a little tender over to Ephesus. That was the first city that you come to. Ephesus was the most important city of all of Asia Minor. In the entire region, it was known as the Vanity Fair of the Ancient World. It was sophisticated. It was the New York City of the day. It was the largest. It was a seaport. About 250,000 population. A quarter of a million people for that day. That was a massive city. There was a house church there. Small group of believers who trusted Jesus. Paul may have started them. Remember in the book of Acts, Paul spent three years there, the longest he spent anywhere. So maybe Paul started the church. At any, at any rate, John wrote the letter back to the church at Ephesus, and here's what he said, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the Seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. What's a lampstand? Church. Seven churches. So he walks among us. And the, the stars, the leadership, he holds the leadership in his hands. We talked about two weeks ago. And he walks among the churches. Verse 2. I know your works, he says. Your toil. And your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves to be apostles, and they're not. They're found to be false. By now, the church at Ephesus had been faithful to God for, to, for about uh, 40 years or so. And there had been some false teachers that came in that tried to lead the people astray. And Jesus called these false teachers uh, people who claim to be apostles, but they're not. Does that mean that it's possible that there are people who come into churches that they say they're Christians, but they really aren't? Yeah. Does it mean that there are people in churches that even have leadership positions and teach classes? These were teachers that teach classes that really aren't even saved? Yeah. So that was happening at Ephesus. First of all, he said, you've, you've born with these people. They've, they've, they're evil people. They're teaching you things that are not right. And then he said, verse 3, I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. What, what was going on? They were, they were in such a hard hardship. Well, what were the three, remember? Persecution, false teaching, cultural influence. That sophisticated city of Ephesus was impacting the church. Jesus said, I commend you for hanging in there. But now comes the rebuke. You got a problem. Verse 4. But I have this against you. 
you have abandoned the love you had at first. Let's stop for a moment. Forty years Ephesus had been there as a church. Boy, they loved Jesus. They were on fire at first. And then as the years went by, their, their enthusiasm waned. And they lost their love. They kept meeting. Oh, they kept having activities. But the love for Christ was gone. And folks, that can happen in any church. We've been here 154 as a church and coming up in two weeks. Is it possible we started out on fire? And the love we had for Christ maybe is growing a little dim? Well, what about you individually? Started out on fire. And maybe, you're, maybe your fire's growing just a little dimmer. Oh, you're still busy. You're still here. You still do things. And, and the Ephesus church, they were still busy. But the love was gone. When your love for Christ leaves, all you have is activities. So be careful any church that does that. And that's what had happened to them. Such a sad indictment. So he told them what to do. Verse 5, remember therefore from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So what he said was, what's, what's the remedy for a heart that, that doesn't love Jesus as much anymore? Maybe that's you tonight. What's the remedy for that? Remember, repent, return. That's what he said to do. Remember what it used to be like. Remember the prodigal son? What brought him back to the father? It's remembrance. I had it so good as a father. Remember what you're, the, the, from where you fell, that love you used to have. And then repent and then return. But look at what he said next at the end of verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What's a lampstand? The church. So what he's saying is, You've lost your first love. If you don't come back to that first love, I'm going to visit you and do away with your church. Did it happen? Yeah. Ephesus didn't repent. And so the church died. Resurrected momentarily in the 11th century. Then it died in the 14th century for good. Is there a church at Ephesus today? Nope. Gone. He did exactly what he said he would do. If your love doesn't return, your church is going to cease to exist. And it did. Warren Wearsby said, when the church loses its love, it will eventually lose its light. <laughs> and that's what happened. So I think Ephesus is a good reminder to us to make sure that our love for Christ always burns brightly. Look what he said next, verse 6. Yet this I have against you. Now he's exhorting them. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now he just drops the Nicolaitans on there and we have no clue who they are. Who are they? Well, we don't know for sure, but 
we really believe, as we go back through church history and look, there was a group of, of people that got into every church and got into the leadership of some of the churches. They became deacons, they became pastors, they became Sunday school teachers, and they followed a man by the name of Nicholas of Antioch. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 6 verse 5. Nicholas of Antioch, and here's what they believed. Irenaeus, the church historian, tells us what they believed. They taught that you can be a Christian, but it doesn't affect your lifestyle. You can go out and have sex with anybody you want to, still be a Christian, it's not that big a deal. You can get drunk all you want, be a, still be a Christian, it, it really is no big deal. You can have all kind of sexual sins, you can participate in the pagan festivals there in Ephesus, you can indulge in the flesh all you want to, and still be a good Christian, it, it's, it, your, your beliefs and your lifestyle are separate. So you live like you want, you believe like you want. And these people got into leadership and churches and preached that and taught that. And the church at Ephesus said, no, 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 wait, wait a minute. That doesn't sound right. And they kicked the Nicolaitans out of the church. And Jesus said, I commend you for that. You hated their works, and I hate their works too. So most likely, those are the ones who are the Nicolaitans, the followers of Nicholas of Antioch, who taught your lifestyle and your beliefs are totally separate. There, by the way, there's some people still believe that today. Then we go to the last one, verse 7, he says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Why does he say the one who conquers? Because the word Nicolaitans literally meant conquering the people so it's a play on words it's a twist on words those uh, th those that, that 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 hear what i say i will allow them to be the conquerors and i will let them eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of god there's a reference all the way back to the garden of eden so we have one of our 350 references back to the old testament one more church and then we'll close so we only, only have time for one more We'll do Smyrna, and then we'll pick up next time, next week, with Pergamum, the third church. Let's go to Smyrna, letter uh, E on your outline, verses 8 through 11. So, you get off the, the boat in Ephesus, and now if you go up the seacoast, stay along the shoreline, and you go up the seacoast for 40 miles, you arrive at the next big town, and that town was Smyrna. Smyrna is never mentioned anywhere else in the Bible except right here. So, we don't know a lot about it. It was a large city. We know that. Population about 200,000. That's another massively large city. Today, Smyrna is the city of Izmir, Turkey. The exact same city. So, it's still there. The name Smyrna means bitter comes from the Hebrew word more or myrrh. You remember when Jesus was born, they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. Myrrh was, uh, it, it was a, uh, uh, whenever you crushed it, 
It was a fragrance that let loose, and they put it on dead bodies to keep it from smelling. They didn't really have embalming like we do. Bodies would start to smell after a while. And so they would crush the myrrh. The fragrance would be very strong, and they would cover the dead bodies with it. So Smyrna means crushed and bitter. Why would they name a city that? Because one tragedy after another hit Smyrna. I mean, one after another after another. Earthquake after earthquake after earthquake. They'd build a city. Earthquake would hit and demolish it. They'd rebuild. Earthquake hit, demolish it, rebuild. Then they'd be invaded and then by another country. And then they'd get their freedom. They'd rebuild. Earthquake, rebuild. It was over and over and over. In fact, Smyrna or Izmir, Turkey, last year had a tsunami that destroyed the town, destroyed the city. 117 killed, more than 1,000 injured. It seems like one disaster after another hits Izmir, Turkey, or Smyrna. So they were being crushed time and time again. And that factors in to the church. There's a small church of believers, small group of believers there in Smyrna, formed a house church, and they were going through difficult times as well. So the city's going through hard times, and the Christians are going through hard times. They also worshipped a goddess in the city of Smyrna by the name of Cybele, or Sybil as we would know it. Cybele was a personification of nature. So every spring they would, uh, they would think, okay, the, the goddess is coming to life. And in the winter, oh, the goddess has died. Oh, the goddess is coming to life. And so they celebrated every spring that the goddess is coming back to life again. So notice how the, the, the letter to the church of Smyrna begins. Verse 8. Now, knowing all that as a background, listen to what he said. Verse 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and last. Who's that? Jesus, Alpha and Omega, who died and came to life. What's he saying? You're in a city that worships a goddess who they say died and come back to life. I'm the one who died and came back to life. So it's a play on what was happening in the city. Verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. You know what was happening at Smyrna? If you were a Christian, they took away your income. So if you had a job and they found out you were a Christian, you lost your job. And you lost any savings that you had. They would freeze your assets. They would, they would take your assets. So Smyrna, of all places, if you were a Christian, you literally lost everything you had. So he writes and he says, I know, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're really rich. Man, they've taken your possessions, but you have more in heaven than anybody else. You're really rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, they're not, they're the synagogue of Satan. Who is persecuting these Christians in Smyrna? Jews, not the Romans. The Jews, God's people. Who say they're of the synagogue of the Lord? No, 
They're the synagogue of Satan. Verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested for ten days, and you will have tribulation. So what he's saying is, some of you are not only going to lose your assets, you're about to be thrown into prison for ten days. Ten days doesn't seem like a very long time. Was that symbolic of another, of a, of a longer time period, a stretch of time? I don't know. We just saw last Sunday morning, Daniel said, test us for ten days with the vegetables and water. Maybe it was ten days. So ten days, you're going to be thrown into prison and you're going to be tested. Did you notice something about Smyrna? There was no rebuke. He, not, he didn't say one thing bad that they're doing. Notice that? None. Wouldn't you love to be a church, as hard as it may be, going through persecution and trials and being poor? Wouldn't it be great to be a church that Jesus looks down at you, actually walks among you and says, I don't see anything wrong here. <laughs> love to be that church, wouldn't you? That was Sardis. I mean, out of the Smyrna. Nothing wrong. But look at the last phrase, right before we close. Verse 10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Boy, there's a lot in that one sentence. Let me, let me kind of pack, unpack it for you. The citizens of Smyrna had a reputation for being really strong worshipers of the emperor. The, the crown. In fact, the Greeks call Smyrna the crown of Asia Minor. Because they were so faithful to the Roman Empire and they bowed and worshiped him constantly. So, what he says is, You be faithful to death, believers in Smyrna, and I will give you the crown. Not the crown of the Roman Emperor, the greater crown. And he uses the word crown, the word Stephanie. You know the name Stephanie means crown, Stephanos. It means Stephanie. It's, 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 a, it's a feminine word. The, the word Stephanos, it means crown. And they would, in their games, they would participate for a crown that they could stand before the emperor and receive their crown and then worship him. And oh my goodness, that was the ultimate for a resident of Smyrna. And Jesus said, believers in Smyrna, you stay faithful to me and there will be one day I will give you the crown and you will bow before me and worship me. And it will be the crown of life that will never end. So they faced intense persecution. Then he finally says, verse 11, and we'll close. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. The Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The word not there in Greek is a double negative. That is the strongest way you can say no. It means, you translate it, no, 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 no. It just, no, over and over and over. It's emphatic. So what he's saying is, if you stay faithful to me, Smyrna, in the midst of all that's going on with you, you'll conquer and you will never, 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 never you'll, you'll be hurt by the second death. That's hell. You'll always have life me well those are the first two churches next week we'll pick up the pergamum we'll finish the churches then after that the next session we'll go into the visions and see what else that john saw we have just about 30 seconds any questions or comments very quickly to the microphone yes
Yes. Yes. Exactly. Question is the word in verse 5, unless you repent, exact same word, metanoia, exact same word, repent that we know of as. Yep. Tell the church to repent, same way an individual repents. Absolutely. All right. Good to see you tonight. We'll continue uh, on studying God's word together and think you're going to really enjoy Revelation in the weeks to come. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to look at the churches of Asia Minor. May we be a church, God, at First Baptist Garland that you look at, that you're pleased with, that honor and glory comes to you through it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.